Okay, so welcome to another edition of Echo Chamber. It's day eight of the festival, people. You know what I mean? It's been, it's kind of flown by. It's crazy busy, but yeah, it seems to have flown by. But um, yeah, it's been another day of fun films. And oh, I did a lot of good interviews today. You know, I had a really good conversation with Richard Squires. Who's um, got a film called Doozy Which, uh, yeah, it's kind of looking at the life of Paul Linden And um, how he voiced a lot of the villains in the Hanabara um, cartoons So that was a really good conversation And you will, uh, you'll get that later in the week, you know, but Hey, there was a lot of others I sat in on the Women in Film panel So I, I'll bring you that And um, I had a really good conversation with um, an actress While we were, um, like, after the interviews and waiting for the panel Yeah, had some, you know, we talked about films We talked about, like, the barriers to entry for women in, in the film industry And stuff like that It was, a, it was yeah, it was really nice having that conversation Um yeah, oh, it's just been so busy. I've forgotten her name, so apologies. But um, yeah, hopefully we can have some more conversations. Maybe get her on the podcast at one point. You know, who knows? But um, yeah. So buckle up and enjoy today's episode. Okay. First film today is the new one by Mike Lee, and that is Peter Liu. Uh, Mike Lee directed and wrote the script. It was produced by Georgina Lowe, and it's starring Rory Kinner, Maxine Peake, and Neil Bell. It's 155 minutes long, and it's from Entertainment One. <clears throat> the uh, breakdown is... As shell-shocked soldiers return from the Battle of Waterloo, they find their hometowns ravaged by a gentry, upping food costs and ripping off the working classes. The French have already had their revolution, and the disenfranchised men and women of Manchester are stirring with their own desire to reform. Nellie, Maxine Peake, is sceptical. Raising her family on a pittance, she is more concerned with food on the table than attending the increasingly volatile protest meetings. But many have been inspired. A peaceful march and assembly is arranged, where the star speaker will be Henry Hunt, uh, played by Rory Kinner. A radical orator, famous throughout the land for his stimulating rhetoric. As the day approaches, the government grows nervous, while the people grow emboldened. In Peterloo, director Mike Lee is working at the pinnacle of his powers, gloriously drawing together so many of his preoccupations, class, consciousness, family dynamics, hypocrisy, humanism and the free balls of the male ego against the backdrop of cinematographer 
Dick Pope's beautiful Manchester Lancashire canvas, the film weaves multiple stories of everyday people into a socialist tapestry and depicts an act of police brutality with huge contemporary relevance. Warm, funny and incendiary. This is a major work of cinema. Now, I have to say, like, going into this film was a bit crazy. There's the Jubilee line broke, and so, yeah, I, I, was, I was running a few minutes late, and it was just a mad rush, and, you know, I'd been on the Jubilee line for over an hour and a half, so I finally got into the screen, and, um, yeah, just kind of started to soak in what I was seeing, and um, the film, like, it was beautifully crafted, I will say that, you know, the, um, all the costumes, like, the set design, the landscapes, you know, it all looked really good, and the other thing is, like, there's often, you'll have something like this, and... Although, you know, the clothing looks right, the people look really clean and just really out of place. But this, everything works. You know, the makeup was on point. Like, everything just fit together. Uh, But I really struggled to connect with the film. So, you know... I don't know if it was because of all the trouble getting in today or if it's just, you know, I just couldn't connect with the film. I just couldn't connect with the, um, you know, the story matter. I'm not quite sure what it is. You know, I probably have to try and watch it again. Um, yeah, just to kind of see. But... Yeah, I it just didn't gel. You know, it, it's it was it's a long film, and I really noticed the time all the way through. It was just like, oh, yeah, this is when's this gonna finish? You know, like <clears throat> I will say, you know, the the battle scene is really well like crafted it is you know it's brutal it's just unrelenting and all of it is captured so well you really feel like you're in the midst of it all you know so that was really good but yeah I don't know what it is but I couldn't I just couldn't gel with this which is a real shame but um you know it, it i would say it, it's worth watching just because the story matters i did not know about this which is crazy this huge things happened i haven't this is the first i ever heard of it um so <clears throat> the next screening will be friday the 19th at 6 p.m. at the bfi south bank um I don't know if I, I guess if you're a fan of historical films, 
this would be for you, you know, master and commander, things like that. I think you you probably would, um, yeah, gel with this. But um, <clears throat> I think I'm going to try and watch it again if I have time this week. And, um, yeah, just see just see what was going down, you know. Hello, people. Well, today, um, I've just finished watching um, a film called Support the Girls. Uh, this was by director Andrew Bujowski, and it was written by him as well. It um produced by Houston King, Sam Slater, and it stars Regina Hall, Haley Lou Richardson, Shauna McHale. Uh and it's from Myrid Pictures. Now the uh the blurb on this is a sports bar with curbs, with an oddly family-friendly emphasis. The restaurant is a peculiar American phenomenon in the expert hands of London Film Festival alum Bujaski, one of the US indie scene's most versatile filmmakers. It's also a perfect venue through which to reveal the modern workplace, ruthless corporate exploitation, defiant workers' solidarity, and messy gender and racial politics. But that's never at the expense of insightful, even-handed characterization and believably funny, touching situations. It's nigh on impossible not to find these take charge women the best company around. From Haley Lou Richardson and Dylan Giola's star employees to the ever excellent Regina Hall's compassionate crisis managing boss. No drama demands James Legros, Gross's uptight sexist owner. Naturally, Bugowski and his girls they disagree. They, they disagree. Yeah, I think you get the gist. They disagree with that sentiment. Okay. So, yeah, that's what, um, you know... The, the gist of the film is that's how we're being sold this film so um going in i i was kind of thinking this would be i guess a cross between something like waiting um that ryan reynolds film from back in the day and like coyote coyote ugly with a little bridesmaid's phone in, you know, so a kind of mishmash of all those three films, um, yeah, this really funny kind of, yeah, this, this thing with a soul, you know, because 
you know, you're being so, so, sold as a big-hearted comedy. The the the, play, the restaurant is called Double Whammies. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like a Hooters-style bar. So you're thinking, okay, there's there's going to be jokes. There's going to be jokes in this. You know, this should be hilarious. And Regina Hall, she's a great actress, you know. Um, and Hayley... Uh, yeah, Haley Lou Richardson too. So I have to say I did feel somewhat disappointed. It's I mean, like all the issues that kind of are mentioned in, in the you know in the boilerplate. I d- they, they, nothing ever really hits home. Like, yeah, nothing really hits home. Like, this is a big point. This is, and, you know, maybe they wanted to be really subtle about it. But even in a subtle way, it doesn't, it's, it's nothing that makes you think. You know, in a, in a film like this... It needs to be underpinned with empathy. You need to feel for every one of those characters to really be able to get on board. But, you know, we're we're not given a whole heap of information about anyone. And at no point did I really care what was going to happen with anyone from the film. You know, whether they were killed, whether they lost their jobs, whether they got promoted, whether, you know, there was nothing that could happen. I was like, oh, I hope they're going to be okay. You know, please let them get through this bit. Oh, yeah, they won. Like, didn't care. Yeah, there there was nothing, nothing pulled on me with this. Which is such a shame because I really wanted it to. I was really kind of looking forward to this film. When I looked through the programme, this was one of the films that I was kind of looking forward to. I was hoping that this was going to be, yeah, this was going to be good. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think it's the characters, they all seemed very one-dimensional. Like, they tried to underpin um, Regina Hall's character, Lisa. They tried to underpin her and show different elements of her life as the film went on. But by the time this gets done, I I think you're kind of like, yeah, I'm done, man. I don't really care now. And it's funny because this is only hour and a half film this is not a long film it's down as 91 minutes you know but it did feel longer it felt like it was longer than what it was yeah you know as I said look things do happen in the film but nothing that you really care about and Because of that, 
you, it's, it's just very empty. The film's very empty. And they, they, there's these uh, there's elements that you think this should be funny. But I want to really want to laugh here. This should be hilarious. But it's not. It's just flat. It just falls so flat. And I was just like, look, this bit should be funny. I should be laughing now. You know, and I wasn't holding. And this is the thing. It's not like you're trying to hold back or anything like that. It's just it didn't invoke a reaction. Which was really sad. And, And another thing that. I'm not quite sure what what the issue was, but the sound was all very mumbly. Like nothing seemed overly clear, and you know, it it what the sound in the cinema it wasn't the film wasn't on low or anything like that. Because everything else was loud and blah, 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 blah. and like some of the conversation you could clearly hear. Then, uh, uh, but the majority of the conversation in the film is all very like I saw and be almost more hmm. should be like and it's it's all kind of like that. This little background noise, and you're just like, what's? I don't understand what's going on here. What's happening? I can't. I can't really make out anything. So that, I think that coupled with some of the other things, yeah, it just impacts on you getting tied into this, you know, to really develop any real emotion. Like, the the way the film's shot, it's a bit all over the place. You know, like the camera's a little bit shit. It's not full on shaky cam. <laughs> you know, what I mean? it's not like born identity or anything like that. But there is some shakiness to the camera. There is some. It's not slick, and it doesn't have to be slick in a a blockbuster way. But when you compare it to something like you know, before sunrise. Where that is a very, I think it, it it's an easygoing way in which Ling later like carries a shot. You know, it's very subtle the way he he manoeuvres from scene to scene. Nothing's kind of hit home like with a hammer or anything like that. You just kind of you flow into it, and, and this didn't do that. This was just very plodding and, like, falling all over the place. It, yeah, it was very weird in some of the shots that were chosen and the angles. It just didn't really mesh together as a whole. And then the film just, it ends on this weird note. You know, so it's a bit like, look, if if you're trying to show, say, like, this day that these people are having, or, well, let's not say a day, it's probably more of a a 24-hour period, 
yeah, that probably works better. You're trying to show this 24-hour period in the lives of these characters. But the way you've ended it doesn't it's you know it doesn't do anything for us as an audience to go right i understand i understand their journey you know what i mean i i i sympathize i i emphasize yeah i can see where they're coming from because you're just kind of thrown in and you just drop out you literally just drop out and you're just like, eh, oh well, fuck it. On to the next one. This is, that That's kind of how it feels. Like, if you go by the infamous six laughter test, I may have slightly chuckled once, but that was it. I will say... I will say others in the screening, they were chuckling at certain points of the film. There wasn't any real boisterous laughter. Like, there was more outright laughter at um, after the screaming has stopped. That documentary had more outright, full-on laughter in it than this comedy. But as I said, look, some some of the people, um, yeah, they they were chuckling. So I'm I'm sure other members of the press will be giving probably more positive write-ups of this. Like, yeah, it, it, you know, like, it wasn't, I didn't hate it, I just didn't care about it, I think that's all I can really say about this one, you know, if, if you're into films that kind of meander, if you're into films that necessarily don't have a natural kind of narrative path if you're into films that don't need a specific beginning and ending maybe you'll enjoy this I mean something that I could probably say this was like was um Oh gosh, it was a it was Sophie Capella's film from a few years back. Um I believe it was called Someday. Um Hmm Yeah, I think it was Someday. It it was a Sophie Capella film, but um, yeah, I I I would probably say that that was kind of uh, had a similar kind of tone to um to what this one did. Yeah, 
I, I would I, I would probably um, say that. But uh, yeah, you know, it's um, it's showing. Um, yeah, it's showing um, several several more um, days. Let me just. Uh, I will give you what other days when you can look out for this film. Okay, so you can the next time you can catch it is Saturday the twentieth of October at eight fifty. That's at the BFI South Bank. And then Sunday the twenty first of October at one o'clock at the Rich Mix Cinema. Okay, so yeah, if you want to find out about the day in the life at Double Whammies, if you're a fan, a fan of Andrew Bukowski, um, you know he he of films such as Funny Ha Ha, um, yeah, Computer Chess. Mutual appreciation results. Yeah, if you're a fan of those films, this could be for you. But yeah. And as I always say, if if you agree, disagree, whatever, you just want to talk about it, you know, leave a comment on Instagram, Twitter, whatever, whatever, and um, share your views on the films. Cool. All right. Enjoy. And so, yeah, we're back, man, for another episode of the pod. Hey, thanks for tuning in. And, um, yeah, like, just, you know, coming on this ride of the London Film Festival 2018. So today, um, today I went to see a film called After the Screaming Stops. Um, and it wasn't a horror. You know, from the title, you might think, oh, what, what kind of crazy horror film was this? Nope, 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 nope. This was a documentary about Bross. Yeah, that's right, Bross, the 1980s pop group. Um, it was directed by Joe Perlman and Dave Sutar. And produced by Leo Perlman. Um, and it's from Sale, um, Lonton Entertainment. Okay, so this is just a blurb on the film. Formed by Camberley twins, Matt and Luke Goss, teenage pop sensations, Boss taste, Bross tasted brief but massive success in the late 1980s. Becoming the youngest band to headline Wembley. Both brothers moved to America following the group's breakup, with drummer Luke becoming a Hollywood actor and singer Matt enjoying several Las Vegas casino residences. Despite a tense and fractured relationship, last year the pair attempted an ambitious London reunion documenting the conflict and the understanding that is born of an unfathomably close genetic bond. 
after the screaming stops is an affectionate and frequently funny portrait of life on the comeback trail, never less than full, fully committed to siblings' serious dedicated dedication generates more than a touch of spinal tap-esque grandiosity. So yeah, that's the, um, you know, the kind of gist of the things. And it's, um, yeah, I think that kind of sums it up well. It's funny, we, we start off really um, with an introduction to Matt and Luke. They're both in America. And, um, you know, Luke is in L.A., and he's talking about, you know, he he's his film career, and we're getting shown kind of footage of him acting and directing something that he's written himself. So he's like, yo, this is my passion project. You know, it's taken all this time to do. Blah 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 Um, there's a little kind of bit from Ron Ron Perlman we see him he talks because Luke and him were in Blade 2 together I believe um because that was Gilmiro del Toro one of his one of the films that Matt has done Luke has done with him so we have that and um and he talks about, you know, making that jump from moving from London to America and the differences and everything like that. You know, it is kind of he's he's sitting there, he's sitting outside and he just says, um, you know, I love London, Big Ben, embankment, taxis. And then he just kind of looks off into the distance. And we're like, okay, right. <laughs> this is what this is what's happening right now, is it? Um, yeah, it's very... It's, and that is this film, this documentary. There's a lot of things that happen and you think, do they intend to come off like that? Are they... Are they trying to be funny here? Like, are they trying to be serious? Like, what? You know what I mean? What, what, what's happening? But um, it then gets crazy. Because then we go to Matt. And, um, you know, Matt talks about, you know, like, writing songs. Like, doing solo albums. And, you know, like, how he then started doing residencies in Vegas so we we see that and then he shows us his house and he's just like um all right so yeah this is my nook oh um this is where i play chess i love chess i'm so, i'm i'm just i just love chess yeah chess is great Oh, he's, you know, um, that's whiskey. Yeah, I sometimes drink whiskey and, um, you know, play chess. Because, you know, I love chess and the brown stuff, you know what I mean? Oh, love it, love it, love it. 
Um, that's my contemplation corner. Um, oh, and then my crystals. Love crystals. And there's all these fucking crystals all around the house. So it's just like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> and, and the thing is Like nothing is said with irony You know Everything everything both brothers say Is, is legitimate, uh, Legitimately Meant For seriousness And that In part Makes this film so damn funny so damn funny because like they they're both trying to be uber serious you know like and and kind of i think they've seen a lot of do- they've they've seen a lot of documentaries and want to be like the, the, some of the things they've seen because they're kind of like you know um when I'm doing this, the emotions that I'm feeling, it just, it just makes me kind of see these colours and it transcends this. And then when I think of my brother, it's like there's no air in the room and I can't breathe. And I just want them to know the emotions they invoke in me sometimes just from a weird look I might get. You know, and you're just like Jesus. Come on, like stop it, man. Stop it. But it, but as I said, look, is that that's what makes this so damn funny? It's the way they deliver their lines. It's the way they just are. It's just it's straight up hilarious. Like so, after we've you know had that introduction to their American lives. The notion of doing the um the the reunion gig comes up, and then they're like, "All right, so yeah, I'm come, I'm we're doing this." And so at first we see Luke go to London, and he's met by a lot of brossettes, and you know, and and he he loves it, you know, like the people, the the people and the um flight attendants, they seem to. Have enjoyed having him in the plane, or they just know him from frequent flights or whatever, whatever. But yeah, you you see that kind of them all giving him a hug as he leaves and everything. So now, then he goes to the studio, and you know he he he's like the drums. He's seen the drums and everything like that. But you you don't really know. Because he never says it, you kind of get the inclination, but it's never, yeah, it's never really said. Like, how often does he play still? Like, does he practice regularly? Does you know? Does he go and do any like just little jam sessions with people? You know, we don't know, but. You know, for the because he gets to London first, so he's here for uh, I don't know. I think it's maybe a week, and he's practicing and getting that feel back for everything. So we do see that, and then we cut to Matt, and Matt's making his way to London. Um, like Matt, the like 
it's funny because we see Luke get hugs off all the um, air stewardesses and stuff like that. Now, when it when it's Matt, when they're showing a similar scene with Matt, that sounds more forced and like Matt's like, "You're giving me a hug. Give me a damn hug now." You know, it kind of it kind of feels like that from the scene. But yeah, then he goes into the airport. Again, a load of brosettes have come out, but they don't. There doesn't seem as many as there were for Luke, and they're definitely an older crowd. These brosettes have lived, you know what I mean. So yeah, he's done the brosette thing, and then he gets to the studio, and then straight away, <laughs> straight away, we feel the tension. You know, they're they're both in the same room together And you're like, oh, okay Yeah, we we get it now We really get it Because they just, they squabble over the most ridiculous things And it's like both have decided Well, I'm going to be the alpha And I'm not backing down from for shit So, yeah Hear me roar, motherfucker. Hear me roar. And, yeah, they just start butting heads. But in the midst of all of this, we get cutaways to kind of past footage of them, you know, at gigs and stuff like that. But then we also... But then one of the first realist moments we get is them kind of talking about their sister... Um, like we just got back off tour, and we're we're bustled into this car, and we're like, "Oh, where are we going? What's going on? We don't know what's happening." And they're like, "Oh, tell us, Mum didn't die. Tell us, Mum didn't die." And they they said like, and they said, "Look, your mum's still alive. Your mum's fine." And then that was it. And then they pulled up at the house, and then found out their sister died. I mean, it was the first time you heard about a sister in the documentary, but it did feel this is kind of one of the first moments when they're being fully honest, you know? So they're talking about this whole experience and how it was at that time, because, like, that evening... They had to go and do Wogan, which is a, um, it was a TV, kind of a TV talk show in the UK. It was kind of like, it's a equivalent to your kind of Tonight Show in America. Um, yeah, but very le- lower budget. <laughs> but yeah, they had to go do that. So they just found out their sister's dead. She had a car accident And then they have to go and do Wogan So they have to perform They have to be, you know, they're like Oh, and, you know, the show wants to give you Your platinum plaques For, you know, selling so many Singles and albums And blah, blah, blah So remember to smile And blah, 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 and they're just like You know, we had to try and smile Try and act like we're having Fun Try and perform 
with that huge loss, that huge void now in our lives. So that was, you know, that's kind of crazy, man. But it was, yeah, as I said, look, it's interesting because it was like the first real moment, you know. Then we're getting more kind of taught, like, all stuff around the performance and stuff like that. They're kind of trying to decide what the stage is going to look like. And then that causes arguments. It's just insane, man. And, um... Yeah, there's just more practice and talk and they're telling us more stuff about, you know, the way they feel about the songs and, you know, this and that. We then get some kind of footage on, you know, the brossettes and these girls are talking about how they sit outside the house for like hours on end. Because, you know, what else is there? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what what else is there they say it's insane it's, it's just crazy man but uh, you just think look now people just kind of follow a hashtag find out when someone's some place and then they go there rather than sit outside a house it's just like it's funny how how you see times were back then you know how people acted and and were around kind of fandom but then we kind of they they talk about um their mum dying, and again, that was another real kind of moment, and they talk about that. We see some kind of footage of their mum like talking to the camera and a video that she made for one of them um so yeah, we have these little moments and stuff like that. But throughout the film, yeah, there's these ridiculous sayings that Matt will kind of drop on you. And he's sit he's sitting there all stoic and then he's just like tries to be profound with these things that are just coming out of his mouth. And I don't even I don't know if he realizes how funny they are, but god damn it, they're just hilarious. And so, um, all right, one of the things, what like one of the things he said was, um, <laughs> I made a decision. <laughs> I made a decision because of Stevie Wonder. To never be superstitious. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> can you believe that? That's just a ridiculous man. It's insane. It's insane. And then another gem. Another gem was like he was a rectangle. I'm a rectangle. But together we made a square. Oh, oh my god. Oh my god. 
Oh, jeez. But it's just like, yeah, the film is littered, littered with gems like that. And it's amazing. It's incredible. Um, yeah. I think one of the things is, like, we don't really hear any songs. Like, I, I think going in, I kind of assumed you'd hear a lot of the old music. But I think we hear kind of bits of a couple of songs. But that's about it. There's nothing... Yeah, you don't really hear full pieces or anything like that, you know? Um, But it does end with some footage of them doing that big reunion gig at the O2 in London. So it just ends on that. It ends on their high note. And by the looks of it, the place was rammed so the brosks the the brossettes were out in force that night so yeah looks like it was successful but we don't get any kind of you know from there they then decided to do this and that and blah 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 blah. so there's nothing like that but um there was some text on the screen afterwards so I don't know if that was a like a little update or something, but yeah, I couldn't see that. So unfortunately, I can't give you that information, people. But I can tell you, this is a this is a fun documentary. You know, it's it's interesting because you know, um, recently there was the MIA documentary. This is nothing like that. Nothing like the MIA documentary whatsoever. But this is still a good documentary. It's still fun. It's interesting. It's hilarious. So, I, you know, if you get the opportunity, you've still got two other opportunities to see this as part of the film festival. So it's next playing um, tomorrow, the 18th of October at 330 at the Odeon Tottenham Court Road. Then it will be Saturday the 20th of October at 1 o'clock at the Prince Charles Cinema. So, yeah, if if you are around at those times, I definitely say this is worth checking out. Even if you're not a big Bros fan, it's still an interesting and fun thing to watch, you know, so yeah, that's it, after the screaming stops, the Bros documentary, all right, people, that's me, and I will see you again, whew, maybe tomorrow, but, you know, pretty soon, all right, enjoy the festival, people, A film that I was very interested in seeing today was Outlaw King. This is the new feature from David McKenzie. He directed, he produced, along with Gillian Berry, Steve Golin and Richard Brown. Um, David McKenzie also wrote the script, along with Bash Doran and James McInnes. It's starring Chris Pine, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Florence Pugh, 
Billy Howe and Stephen Dillan. It's 132 minutes and it's from Netflix. So everyone will be able to see it soon. And um, so the breakdown is Scotland, 1304. English King Edward has triumphed. William Wallace is in hiding and the nobles north of the border have been forced into submission. Although he is favourite for the Scottish throne, Robert the Bruce, Chris Pine, remains steadfast in his desire to end the um, occupation. And, and, and as his unease at the treatment of his subjects increases, plans for insur- insurrection for men. With the ruthless Prince of Wales as his foe, Robert quickly discovers that playing fair is not rewarded. And when the prince gives the decree to raise the dragon, the time of chivalry is officially over and it's a no-holds-barred fight for Scotland's existence. Pine exudes gravitas and charisma as both a strong ruler and beloved man of the people. He's supported by a cracking ensemble cast, supplying flesh and blood to battle scenes, while rising star Florence Pugh, also appearing in a festival in a special presentation, Little Drummer Girl, is superb as Robert's spirited English wife. As a director, Mackenzie has often explored the nuances of machismo, and it's with obvious relish that he works on such a grand scale here. A bold vision of the era, Outlaw King is a hugely entertaining epic set amid the jaw-dropping beauty of the Scottish landscape. <clears throat> this is it's an interesting film because you have some really good performances... But an issue with it are some kind of plot holes that you notice throughout. Like, um, I think one of the things at the start, you really don't know what the um, time duration is. Because the film starts really well. It You know, it starts with Edward, like... So basically, he's just subdued everyone in Scotland, and so everyone's paying fealty to him. So it starts really well and kind of sets the tone of the film. But then, so we go from that to a few other scenes, but we don't. It's like has a week gone by, has a month, a few months. Like we don't know what the time frame is. So it's a bit hard to kind of understand things, you know, because everything, because, you know, it could be a rush, but we don't know. And that's a problem. Like, another weird problem as well is issues with um, Elizabeth, who is uh, Robert's wife. And it's 
we don't see how her opinion of him changes because it goes from one thing to the other and we just don't see it so it's a bit odd because then a certain decision is made and it's like but why would she make that decision you know that's not clear at all why why would that decision be made you know so that's an issue and then you know i i i think there's problems with um a a, a few other things you know yeah it's like there's a, a situation with a crown um there's something with edward towards the end which just suddenly happens and you just like but what why why would that happen there was nothing to indicate anything so that's just really weird so yeah you you have things like that and it's a it's a big shame because if it wasn't for a few things i think this film could be outstanding but there's a few things that are just dragging it down like i think one of the standout performances like chris pine is decent and he um he does stoic well you know you see there's a few kind of close-ups with his face and so you see this stoic expression and yeah he does that well but I, for me Aaron Taylor Johnson is probably the standout here he is really good his performance is really good some performances aren't as good though like especially the children and you know I, you don't want to say children are rubbish because look they're still they're young they're getting to to know the nuances of the game a lot of the time but yeah I think the problem with a lot of the kids in the film was on one level, they were fine. So uh, with straight up kind of interactions, it wasn't too bad. But when you had to then flip the emotions, that's when things got a bit shaky. And it didn't really sell for me on that level with them. So there was that. And there's some consistencies. Like there's a bit with Elizabeth at the end and... I know for a fact that it, when people go into those, let's say, situations, there's issues, you know, even if you come out, you're not coming out clean, you know, there's, you're going to have some wear and tear, she didn't have any wear and tear, so it's like, uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of stuff that was kind of missed, a lot of stuff in the end battle that makes you go I don't believe that's historically correct uh, you know it, it, it just doesn't kind of it's yeah it's just slightly spoiled that's the thing it, it's slightly spoiled with these things because you, you have fantastic um scenery the scenery is fantastic you have some really great shots that zoom in on the horse riding or like really um 
kind of scope around to capture like the castle views things like that you know that's really done well it's like people's um you know the costumes and everything just details fantastic everything looks great you know the feel of the film is great but yeah it's just these little things that just hold it back from being a really good film So uh, you know That's a shame But if you were a fan Of things like Robin Hood um, You know I, I guess you would say Braveheart Because that's just a You know that, that's a standard one To kind of go against Then you, yeah you'll like this Look it's better than the Old 90s Rob Roy so yeah, that's for sure. But um, but yeah, the, it, it, it it's just tripping itself up a little. But you can see it on Thursday the eighteenth at two twenty p.m. at the Embankment Garden Cinema, and then Friday the nineteenth at eight forty p.m. at the Prince Charles Cinema. So that's the Outlaw King, and you know if you can't see it. You'll be able to catch it on Netflix pretty soon, I believe. I think the best film I saw today is Jessica Haynes' directorial debut, The Fight. Um, she directed, she wrote the script. It was produced by Jason Mazza, um, Noel Clark. Maggie Monteith, David Wade, and Jamie Adams. <clears throat> and it's starring Jessica Haynes, Sean Parks, and Rona Mitra. It's 91 minutes, and it's from Unstoppable Entertainment. The breakdown is Tina, a busy mother of three, can barely find any time for herself, with her husband on night shifts, her eldest daughter being bullied at school, her parents' relationship on the rocks, not to mention juggling her own full-time job. She feels life overwhelming her, but things are about to get even more complicated when the reappearance of a former school rival forces Tina to face up to some difficult memories. Determined to regain control, Tina steps into the boxing ring, and discovers how to fight for herself. The ever-charming Haynes proves herself as adept behind the camera, and she is in front of it, crafting an effortlessly warm and witty family drama that proves we all have a lot to learn about ourselves, no matter our age. I think this film is um, it's really well-framed, like, because Haynes starts it with herself in a box fit class. And you just see her looking at the boxing ring. Like, and you can see that she really wants to actually try her hand at boxing. But feels that she can't. She keeps on, like, you think she's going to walk over, but she there's something holding her back. Then we get to a scene of her daughter, Emma, um, being bullied. 
And with that, you know, she's looking at the girls, like, longing for friendship. And you really see the parallels between the two of them. Because they're both longing for something that just seems too far out of reach for them both. Which I thought was an an interesting way to get things going. And to kind of um, introduce you to the story, you know. It's, um, yeah, I, I think all the way through, the story is just well thought out, well gauged. Like, the pacing is really good here. <clears throat> and you, you see, like, how I think Tina in her youth, is is kind of reflected in what's happening with Emma now. So you we're we're seeing this kind of shifting fate that's kind of passed down through the family, and it's something that she couldn't get a handle on, and so it's resurfaced, and it's one of those things that until you exercise those ghosts it's gonna keep on being there and that's that seems to be a theme throughout of this film as well we're looking at different relationships with the characters so you've got Jessica and her mum and her dad you've got Jessica and her kids Jessica and her husband and Jessica with her old school um Acquaintance, probably best say, and then Jessica and the boxing. So there's all these different relationships and dynamics that have to be like navigated, they have to be understood for her to like achieve anything, can get anywhere, and that's the real. I feel highlight of this, just that personal dynamic, you know, that's just brought to life so well. Yeah, I I think um, you see that relationships are affecting other characters as well, because that essentially is the reason... um, Jessica, who's um, Tina, that's how she gets into boxing, essentially. And also, it's her husband, like, the chemistry between her and her husband is really good. But then, like, it switches. and And you see the struggle... That they're having in connecting on a different level So just them themselves, they get on But then when it you have to incorporate the kids And what's going on with her parents That's when things get a bit tricky And so, it, it you know, it's really well done That one minute they're great Then suddenly they're not But then they're good again And it's just like you really believe it 
And that's the thing. It's not just, hey, how are you doing? Shout, shout, shout. No, we're fine. Boom, boom, boom. You know, it, it, it's so well put together that you believe everything that's happening and you can see how it's happening. And again, it's not just because it's not just Tina that needs to get a hand on things that are around her. Like her parents have to, her husband has to, like her daughter has to. And this is what we see. It's that journey all the way through the film that everyone is trying to grow. Everyone's trying to evolve and learn and understand who they really are. So... Yeah, I, I've. It's just, it's a great film. You know, I, I don't know what else to say. It's just a really good film, and it really knows how to touch that human element. There's a a, a really lovely scene by the river. There is no dialogue, but everything is expressed just through some actions and it speaks probably louder than it would if it did have dialogue it's just such a good scene and um yeah i think this is something that everyone should try and see you know the the next opportunity you have is friday the 19th at 12:30 PM, and that's at the BFI South Bank. Then Sunday the twenty first at three PM at the Odeon Tottenham Court Road. Um, I mean, I'd I'd hope that this will be playing at places like the 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 um, Prince Charles, you know, the Picture House. So. If you can't see any of these official screenings, have a look and see if you can find it somewhere else. Because it is definitely a must-see. It is one of the standout films of the, um, of the festival, I'd say. So, another film that I saw was um, United Skates. I, I didn't really know much about this going in, but I just saw a, a quick little... 30 second feature of it before one of the films and it looks so interesting that I thought yo I have to check that out um it's from Dina Winkler and Tina Brown they both directed and produced this it's 90 minutes and it's from Endeavor Content so it's um you know this is the gist Debut filmmakers Winkler and Brown document a vivid and thrilling subculture that works on many levels. It employs self-expression as an artistic tool and generates social gatherings. It's a popular family hobby and it makes the best use of community space. It's not widely known that hip-hop artists such as Dr. Dre, Queen Latifah and Busta Rhymes began their music careers lighting up these events, now referred to as adult nights. Themed evenings catering specifically for black audiences, United Skates explores the origins of the phenom how it impacted race issues, the different skating styles and economic issues throwing doubt on the future of these rinks. 
It's a thrilling documentary with dope cinematography and skaters showing off dazzling moves. Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. This completely blew me away. It's such a fascinating documentary. Like the way it starts off, you'd think that you're you're just about to watch a new addition to the Fast and the Furious franchise. Because you have everybody, like all all these people just it's like standing around talking, all like looking like dressed up, looking fly and shit. Um and then suddenly it kind of pans and you and you see them going into a skating ring and it's like wait what 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 is going on here and yo there's people of all different ages all different like young middle age really old like all going to the ring to just bust some moves on the on the on the dance floor you know it just like everyone's down to skate like Everyone, you know, um, and it's crazy, and you just learn all about this this subculture, like um. So basically, you know, you you have these certain nights at some rinks, and they're called adult sessions, and they're predominantly like black, uh, you know. There's there's not really anyone else going to them other than yeah black people really because you know it's it's playing like the music that, like they want to listen to you're allowed to just do all all funky moves like wear what you want to wear and everything like that you know. You're allowed to be innovative and creative, and it and it showed that this family go to a normal like day session, and the woman comes up to them and is like, "Oh no, you can't be here! Like your skates are wrong. Yeah, your skate. You've got there's issues with your wheels, so I'm gonna have to ask you to leave." And they just, you know, they'd walked in, they'd paid their money, they were, they'd got their skates on, just about to step on, and she's run over, and she tells them this. And they're like, wait, but what? But uh, that doesn't make any sense. There's nothing wrong with these wheels. These wheels are fine. And the woman is trying to come up with any excuse to get them out of the ring. And they're like, yo, there's people on your rink with the same wheels as us. And she's like, oh, no, uh, that's because we didn't spot them. That's it. That's the, the only reason they're there is we didn't spot them. And it's just shameful. You know, you're seeing this stuff and it's just ridiculous. You also then go to scenes of, um, like, these, these black knights and the police that are there. It's insane. So you, there's this shot and you just see... Like everyone going in or happy talking, and then the camera pans round and there's police with machine guns, and it's just like the difference is crazy, and you have the um 
the one of the ice rink owners and he comes and he's like i don't know why the police are here like this like i told them i have never had a problem in all the years i have run this ring i have never had a problem at one of these nights like the only ever issues are in the car park but even then nothing really happens you know but the police don't care like he said look i called the police i told them but they themselves decided to make it a category alert which is like what does that tell you you know what does that tell you about what's going on it's it's just terrible and you're seeing, you know you're seeing these rinks closing and the the different things that the councils do to try and shut down the rinks and stop pe- black people from skating it's just terrible because then when you see everyone on the ring it's just the atmosphere is incredible and there's this camaraderie camaraderie comrade well you know what i'm saying it's just that it's just the vibe everyone's pulling together everyone's helping each other everyone's talking and happy i it's it's insane you know yeah you don't i've just never seen this before this whole skating culture like is you know we follow this family around a little bit and the kids everyone in the family is just like it's friday it's time to skate right yeah and they're all so excited to go so excited to go uh, one of the crazy like like one big thing is seeing the different styles of skating you know is look i've i've skated I didn't know there was all these different styles You know The the, the most with different styles that I know Is um, Essentially Like figure skating When you see all the pivots And the turns and the jumps and blah, blah, blah. But no These moves That these people are doing Are Fire Like they just make your jaw drop You're seeing everything And the innovation is crazy And what's even crazier Every city Has their own style Like Chicago Washington, Boston Like everyone's got Their own unique way Of skating So it's just so they're having these Big competitions and skate Offs and Man, it's just so interesting And another thing I didn't know I did not know that, like, a lot of rappers started off in the skate halls You know, like, hey, I've been down with rap for for years, man You know, I've, I've gone to so many concerts, seen so many people Like, all the old school cats, everyone, man, you know but I did not know about the skating and how, yeah, that was like one of the only avenues in the very beginning for them to start and be able to play in front of big crowds and, you know, like just get their thing going. So it was really interesting seeing that aspect of things. But I think this is it's, it's, it's a story about struggle. 
it's a story about oppression, you know, but it's also a story of hope, a story of perseverance, a story of family, you know, a story of standing up and fighting for what you believe in. And I have to say, Deanna and Tina just they've done a magnificent job with this. It it blew me away when I saw it. And I hope that, you know, everyone listened to yesterday's podcast and went to see it um Wednesday evening. Because yeah, it's fantastic. Um and I I yeah, look, if you didn't see it in the festival, just try and catch it. When it gets distribution over here, like definitely go watch this because you you, you you're you're gonna walk out of your jaw just hanging down because it's so spectacular. Like the moves, just everything about this, it blows you away. Oh shit! And you know something else which I did not even know. Because skating boots aren't, they're not exactly great, right? They look pretty ugly. These, like, you have people skating on all manner of things. There's, essentially, you're just attaching the wheels. So you have people attaching wheels to, like, work shoes. You have people attaching wheels to Timberland. You have people... People attaching wheels to Converse. Whatever type of shoe. There's people like wearing them. So it's just. As I said look. It's the creativity. The innovation. It's ridiculous. Like everyone is just. Up in the game. Up in the game. Like coming in full effect. So it's just. It's it's fascinating and i will say look united skates is it's another must see so yeah go check it out people you will not regret it trust me okay so i'm here with diana winkler oh sorry diana winkler the director of united skates so diana i you know this was something that i had no clue about you know i come yeah, there's not that kind of same skater culture like within the black community that I know of in this country. So how did you get involved with the, with the making the film? Like, were you a skater yourself? No, not at all. And actually, I will say that there are some uh, black UK skaters that do come to the US to skate and have bringing that back here and also have their own style and custom. And in, in London alone, I think about 60 of them came to our premiere. Um, and they're very proud of what they do and they're fighting to get a rink here. So I hope that maybe in the future um, the UK will also have a culture like in the US. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, because I don't know of any rinks, definitely no, anything sadly. like that. Yeah. So, like, how did this all come about? Um, which part? The, 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 the world, the culture? The, the documentary. The documentary. Yeah. Um, well, 
uh, Tina and I, we uh, were a two-woman team. We shot the entire thing, we directed it, produced it, raised all the money, did all the sound. Um, it's really just the two of us until post-production when our team grew to get to the finish line. And um, we were making a film about what we thought was the end of roller skating, that no one did it anymore, just like you were saying. There's mm. no rinks in New York City where we were living. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, we met these two... Uh, younger skaters who went, oh, skating's not dying, it just went underground. And if you want to see really good skating, you should follow us. So we did. And we went on an overnight bus from New York down to Virginia. Okay. And in the middle of the night, we walked into a rink packed with 2,000 people plus, just killing it on the skate floor with their own music, their own fashion, their own mm. skate styles. And we had no idea that this existed. Um, and actually, you know, as non-black, non-skaters, uh, we put our cameras down and we didn't film anything because we said, do we have the right to make mm. this film? Is this our film to make? We didn't think so. Um, but we made a lot of friends and asked a lot of questions and just appreciated the space that we were in. Um, and it wasn't actually until we really got to know them and uh, found out what they wanted in a film and that they wanted to make one with us that we did it together. Ah, yeah. right. Yeah, I think, you know, watching it, you, you see, like, I feel like the, the struggle from everyone, you know, because the rinks are closing and it's harder to find, you know, a, like a, an adult night, an adult session they can go to. But then you see the transformation of when everyone hits the rink, that, um, that family, you know, that family vibe is everyone knows each other from other places and they just come together. And I think you really capture that so well. Thank you. Like, um, you know, we, we, we tried to use some of um, the celebratory beauty of this world to talk about some of the deeper, harder issues of race in the U.S. Uh, mm. right now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of films that either just look at the social issue and then they're quite um, challenging to sit through because yeah. they're depressing. Yeah. Or there's happy films, but they don't actually go deep. And we yeah. tried to make a film that did both at the same time where um, you kind of leave the theater feeling both uplifted and frustrated mm. and mm. wanting to help protect this culture and loving it and also you know wanting to change the, the system hopefully that that we live in yeah no I think you managed to do that because you know we because I learned a lot about the skating but then you also hit the things like having an adult session and the fact that you know they would do all like rinks seem to do all they can to stop those sessions like saying you can't have these skates you can't have this music you can't wear these clothes and it's that kind of you know it's something that you come across like I've, I've been in the music industry a lot and you, you find that putting on night books, you know, not being able to do a night at a weekend, like, you know, just this whole weird... Well, we have a whole section in the film about music in the U.S. as well during the era of, you know, the beginnings of rap and hip-hop. Yeah, That they yeah. weren't allowed to perform in large venues because they weren't taken seriously. Mm. And one of the only places large enough that they could perform were roller rinks. And so they became this platform for, you know, the early Queen Latifah, N.W.A., Salt and Pepper, Coolio. They yeah. all, you know, performed... LL Cool J in these rinks 
first before they were taken seriously and recognized? Yeah, that was fascinating to me because, you know, I, I love rap and I, you know, you, you kind of watch documentaries, you hear like you, conversations about the early days, but I've never heard anyone talk about starting in the, the skate rink. So that was just, you know, that was something completely new to me. So that was, yeah, really interesting. Absolutely. And I think, you know, people don't realize that um, uh, fake news is unfortunately um, a secret weapon of the U.S. and they use it quite often to manipulate people in our country and um, it's not something new. It's been going on forever and mm. uh, during the time of desegregation they used a lot of fake news to install fear in white Americans yeah. so that if they saw large groups of black bodies they would assume that it was dangerous or violent even though that wasn't true mm. Um, mm. and sadly that's something that's perpetuated through to today and so um, we often would see that on the nights at the rink that were predominantly African-American, there would be police at the door, cops outside, um, an assumption that it was going to be dangerous and violent. And on the nights that were more predominantly white, nothing. there was nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, those are some of the ways that we start to crack open the, the deep-rooted racism mm. in the U.S. And, and the, the fact that you can't even roller skate and be black in the U.S. without being policed. Yeah, it was it was crazy because the, the owner of the rink was just like, I don't know why this happens. They just decided to put it on, you know, an alert. And I told them, there's never, I've never had any trouble in the rink. But still, yeah, so it was this weird kind of thing. Like, these people were seeing this happen, but there's nothing they can do to stop it. And it's, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, there's one shot that I love in the film where I'm following a family with a dad and he has his child on his shoulders and he's walking in his mom and dad and the kid. And, and you see them going into this family-friendly moment in a roller rink and then the camera just turns and there's this massive cop car with cops with yeah. guns watching yeah. them go through the doors. Yeah, which was like, from the first scene, you wouldn't think that that's behind yeah it was just yeah. a, a completely crazy situation like how long did it take you to film all of this oh, um we shot for almost five years oh. well four years i should say and then a year of post a year and okay. a half of post-production i mean that makes sense because yeah and that, that's a kind of thing because you've got kind of got bookends with the rink sh that one rink shutting and then reopening which don't was tell people the ending <laughs> I'm just teasing <laughs> <laughs> that's not the ending people it's definitely it's just a little moment not the ending no we, we, we wanted a happy ending but the truth is is that rinks are just continuing to close um, and we were getting phone calls and emails nearly every month just saying our home rink is shutting what can we do our rink is closing and we didn't want to end the film on such a sad note mm. and so we did wait until we did find one rink that w that had fought and won and yeah. did was able to reopen to prove that it is possible and we can fight back and we can you know preserve these spaces for not only the black community, but all of us who, mm. who need a place to go, need a place for our kids to go that's safe and, and not uh, encapsulating um, buying something. Because really, the only places left to go are shopping malls. And yeah. there's more to life. <laughs> well, I, I think you, you show a journey. And even though there's these moments 
of um, problems and trouble, the way the film ends, it's like that candle in the dark, like there's still that hope. So yeah, I thought it was, it was a really nice documentary. I didn't notice the time, it just, you just get immersed in it. And I, yeah, you did a great job. I really enjoyed watching it. So thank you very much for um, doing this. Thank you so much. Um, I hope that, that others will be able to watch it as well. Our, our last screening is tonight in yeah. London. Um, so I'm assuming this won't air before Oh then. no, I, meant, I, I put it out in yesterday's podcast. I let people oh, know it was at nine o'clock and they should go see it. Okay. So, well, hopefully yeah. they'll come. There's, um, there's one moment when one of the skaters um, is full, full speed skating around the rink, kicks off one of his skates, catches it, puts it under his bum and then slides through a tunnel of, of human legs yeah. um, and, and the whole audience just always erupts and starts yeah, oh, that screaming. Was in, yeah, that was incredible. When we, when we saw that moment, it was yeah. just like... Uh, so it's fun to watch with other people in the room, mm, sure. Oh, definitely. <laughs> but um, yeah, I hope to see your next production as soon as it comes out. And I appreciate it. it. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Pleasure as well. gender parity across three of the four competition strands and the number of countries represented is 77 in total and we've got five different countries represented here and uh, five amazing women let me introduce Ciudad Padan who made The Day I Lost My Shadow which is a kind of neo-magic realist drama set in war-torn Syria then we have Deanna Winkler who made United Skates it's a roller skating documentary based in African-American communities and then we have Arancha Echevarria. She made Carmen y Lola. It's a romance between two young women in the desert Roma community. And Sarah Bletter. She made Mayfair, the appropriate name for today, and was an Indian South African crime drama. And finally, Jessica Hines, who made The Fight, which is a British drama about a busy mother who hits the boxing ring. Now, if anyone ever wants to generalize about the kind of genres women have drawn to, you should just ask these ladies here, because this is an amazing spread. Um, we've got so much to talk to. You know, I think we could speak to so much about women in film, but if you could both just all start off just talking a little bit about what inspired you to make your films, just for a minute or so each. and joy and 
celebration, which is something that you very rarely, unfortunately, see uh, coming out of black culture. Usually in the media, you see violence and you see protests and you don't see that. So we tried to, on one hand, um, really shine a light on what it truly means to be black in the US and then use that celebratory joy that we can see the little bit of um, social message. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. My film is about love, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Spanish. <laughs> but it's the, the love of two gypsy girls. Um, all the actors were real gypsy people that I lived for 40 years on the streets in the market. And they are not professional actors. Um, it was a really tough uh, <laughs> film to do. Uh, we were talking before, and I said, it's a miracle, it's not a, a movie. <laughs> yeah. But everybody said, mine too, mine too. <laughs> yes, because being a woman and being not gypsy and go to a community that is very patriarchal, and, and the male is the, the one that orders everything, it was very difficult. And talk about homosexuality, it was like, you're crazy. You will never can do this film. But we did. Um, and, and as I sort of evolved the story, um, I, I, I kind of then realised that 
the more I was telling the story and the more I was, I was writing it, then it, 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 was, it was becoming about, it, was, it sort of started off a bit more sort of lighter, maybe more comedy, and then as I was developing it, it I realised that what, there were some things that were naturally coming through, but that were things that were, were kind of dormant, I suppose, in me that I really wanted to explore, which is about family dysfunction, about personal struggle, um, and about ways of overcoming that. And that's really what the film became about, and it became about a woman who was battling in boxing in to, 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 to break that cycle of dysfunction in order to be happy in the present, in order to be happy in her family. Um, and that's really sort of what it, what it became about. We were talking about um, how you, a lot of you come from a documentary background, and you said something, yeah, you said something very interesting, Deanna, that actually it's in, in a way slightly easier for women to make documentaries. Can you explain why you feel that is or an easier way to break into film? Sure. I mean, for a narrative film, you have to raise the money up front. And so as a woman, as someone who's perhaps not taken as seriously at first in the beginning of your career, raising that kind of capital is very hard to do. Where with a documentary, I can pick up a camera by myself and shoot and prove to the world that I know how to make a film. And so um, what my partner, she was also a woman, um, my film making partner, um, the three of us shot the entire film, did all the sound, produced it, raised all the money, directed it, and it wasn't until post that we actually brought in the rest of the team. And um, in that way, we kind of had the immediate access to allow ourselves to prove that we could make a film that you don't get to see in your life. You mentioned working with a female partner. Um, does anyone else want to speak about working with wi other women specifically and whether that's significant? I don't know. In my film, 75% of the shoot are women. But they are not only script, makeup, and photographer. There's the music, there's the DOP, there's the producer, there's the distributor. I, I try to, to get involved as much women as, as possible because I am a woman. If I don't do it, who's going to do it? <laughs> because when I went to, to, to the producer with, with my idea, I said, hello, I am 50 years old. <laughs> this is my first film. I want to do this film with about lesbian gypsies, with non-professional actors and all the producers said, are you crazy? Go away. Because there were five or six male with a, a, a very silly idea, but easy to do, or, or they have their background from the, their, their other movies. And I was there alone. It's very difficult to, I want someone give me, please, $10 million. <laughs> I will do an amazing blockbuster. <laughs> Trust in me. But nobody is going to do it. So I have to present myself as, as you to write the financial. And, and it's a nightmare. I, I want to direct, not to look for the money also. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's, a, that's a problem. But we were in Cannes with the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So I yeah. went to all the producers and said, <laughs> <laughs> making an independent film, first-time filmmaker, woman filmmaker, and trying to tell the story of the world of not action movie or not about destruction, it's about magic realism movie. <laughs> so <laughs> if you add all that stuff, it was really difficult. But uh, also I was proud I made it with my sister. Uh, we were 
both sisters living in Syria making this film in September. You moved to Beirut and you were like, it was a crazy endeavor. Like everyone is out here complaining at the commission. We all women filmmakers complain that that men get the post -produ the production grant, but women get the post production grant. <laughs> they, they they only give you money when they see the movie that you are capable doing it. And the development money is not really really a great risk. It's just ten thousand fifty thousand. But the production grant is always for men. And so in fiction, this is really really difficult to make. So we had my sister was to have to ask every, every little bit fund you can find from human rights for non traditional funding you can make and like. Like uh, until we made this film at the end, even if you, it looks easier because the film is a current uh, subject about Syria. But actually, we were saying, why not making a documentary? Why making a fiction? Why? Why? Why you? Why you talking a war about war and you are a woman? <laughs> why you making film a film about war and you are a woman? And he said, can I tell you something else? Being now Syrian and in exile and lost my country, you know. So all the difficulties that women have faces in the different parts of the world. It's, you have to add it layers, layers <laughs> of oh. uh, exile and war and refugee. Amazing <laughs> job just getting it yeah. right and it's a sweet film. Um, so can you talk to me about, because you were talking about you know, some of the preconceptions people have about genre and like why, why would you want, you mentioned it briefly earlier, but can you talk a little bit more yeah. about that? Why people were wondering why you would want to make that kind of film and how you proved to them, well obviously the proof is in the pudding, but how you yeah. managed to actually make it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's so few genre films made by women, mm -hmm. um, you know, just in terms of the reception of the film since it's, it's been completed, you know, it, it gets invited to so many festivals because they want a woman, <laughs> and there are no women making genre films, yeah. um, yeah. so it was a challenge, but it is, uh, you know, there, there, there's one uh, big shootout scene in the movie, um, and when, when you read the script, it was, it's, the, it's this big shootout in a training depot. And it's like people are jumping out from trains and everyone's shooting. And um, when you watch the scene, the scene ultimately becomes about the trauma for the main character of seeing someone dead. Um, and it made me it, it made me so acutely aware of, I mean, I, I suppose it's terrible to generalize because actually there is no generalizing. It's not women do this and men do this. But like when I, when I had to look at myself, there is a tendency in myself, absolutely, to, I don't care about the script. You know, I don't care about like the, the, the crates that need to be shot and little bits of crates needs to fall off and car chases. When, when I watch those movies, I sort of fast forward it through the car chase. <laughs> <laughs> so it, instinctively, it's so foreign to me to, to, to do a genre movie. Um, but actually, you know, you, you can do that big shootout scene and make the scene be about something human at the same time. And I, I, I think that as more women start making genre films, the genres will change um, naturally and, and yeah. they will become more accessible to, to more women audiences. Yeah. Um, and I, th I, th I think that particularly coming from a country like South Africa, where there's so much violence against women, um, you need women to be making films about violence because you need a female gaze on the violence um, that, that changes the way that violence is understood um, so that the violence isn't understood from a male perspective, but it's actually really understood in terms of the impact that it's having on women. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like we all need to land our topics and get our <laughs> 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 That's been also fantastic.
Um, just to talk a bit about the theme of your film, because obviously making a movie about boxing isn't what, again, what people sort of naturally expect from women, and how fantastic to have this perspective on it. Um, did you find any obstacles when you were trying to kind of sell this idea, or were you struggle doing it? Well, I, I, can I just pick up on something mm, about this idea of Jonathan? Because yes. actually I was really inspired by Rocky. Great. Yeah. And I wanted to make a film, you know, a microfilm where I left the cinema going, yeah, come on. You know, like, and obviously I feel a bit like that when I've watched those genre films, but I wanted to make it even more like that to reach out to an audience and, 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 and you know, and give that feeling, you know, that, that sense, which is, you know, so I, I, I thought it was really interesting what, what you say. Um, um, but I, in terms of getting the, the film made, um, you know, Time. It took it took a lifetime and it took no time um, because it's the first film I've ever made. So it's the first I've never directed before, and I feel like it's it's it, as a director I was sort of um, you know I, I've pretty much given up on the thought that I would direct. You know I, yeah pretty much, and it was just it felt like suddenly I was I just suddenly somehow kind of just got into a slipstream because maybe because I hadn't given up on the thought that it would happen, and I had a, a kind of a, you know files of ideas and films. Just that I'd tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and tried and failed to make, and then suddenly somehow I kind of found myself talking to you know a female uh, film financier and saying, would you would you be interested in me directing a you know a, a, a micro budget feature? I've got an idea. And she went, yeah, yeah, I would. I was like, okay, great. Well, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, I will send you the, 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 the treatment, and then that was a very quick. Yes, you can do it. And then it was a very quick. Suddenly, like, okay, so. Do you mean when you say do it, you mean sort of do it? <laughs> and you're going to give me the money to make this micro budget feature? And she said yes. And I said, great. Okay. So, so basically, anything at that point, any any obstacle, any hurdle, any ridiculous low budget, any time constraint, any constraint, I was just absolutely ready to, to overcome because because I'd been I felt like even though it was it, effectively, she said that in March when we were started principal photography, I basically set up all the locations and the Folkestone. I kind of got all brought in favors. I Created the, the, you know, and I organised everything. I got a, a, a secondary school involved and went and did workshops. I went and, and talked to an old people's home, so I used to film there and set everything up so that when we started filming in July and 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 people turned up, you know, I was kind of ready for it. Um, but that was like, you know, a matter of months as I was sort of developing the script and kind of getting ready for it. But that, that, that in some senses it was really a lifetime, or at least from my early twenties when I really did want to start directing, and just it just never really happened for me. So other things happened, but you know that, um, and so you know, so 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 it was quick, you know, and it was amazing because we started principal photography in July, um, two thousand seventeen, and then I, uh, you know, and I and I did a screening of the film for, for all the local people who participated in the film, who I was so grateful for because I couldn't have done it without this, because you know when you go into somebody's factory and you say, you know, I make a film, and I, you know, and I've only got this amount of money, but I would really love to, you know, film in your space, and they go, yeah, sure, you know, yeah. You, you just are overwhelmed with gratitude. And, but all the people who collaborated and helped in that way to make the film possible, uh, they were the first people who saw it. And I did a screening in Folkestone in July 2018. And um, so it's pretty much a year from principal photography to, to, to completion. Um, and uh, and, uh, and that, was a, that was phenomenal. You know, it was a great feeling. Yeah, yeah. I think there are nods here, because it strikes me a lot of your films actually tackle the issue of community. Um, and was the community very much important in terms of getting it made? If anyone wants to speak to that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I need a community that was very difficult to get into. Mm. But uh, as you, the people, I, I mean, for example, I think that people have fear of the, of the 
yours because they don't know them. Yeah. And uh, at the moment that you know that the other person uh, is, is willing how to pay their rent, uh, love their children as, as, as you love them, you feel that connection and it's not a community, it's part of your life. And I think it's very important for us as we work with, with this with these feelings to be part of the community that we are gonna show. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. my thing. <coughs> I, 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 I like the thing that I had to make a thing even when I could create the, uh, to make it the thing, to locate it and searching all around even I could create the country I love. So in the better thing, it's become really uh, more difficult because you lose every favor, everyone believe in you, every sponsorship, every location you can naturally have an independent thing to make your particular thing. Suddenly everything you have to pay to search and to recreate. So, so basically in my community, I was at the background of the financial issue and believe in anti the therapeutic, therapeutic, uh, therapeutic, uh, therapeutic. Uh, aspect <laughs> of art. I was also trying to mix between professional actors and non-professional actors. So basically, besides the four main actors, professional actors, all the actors are coming from uh, refugee camps in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. I believe that not only uh, to, uh, it's, an it's a way of expressing it. He, I can heal somehow. Maybe I can change nothing in my team. Maybe I can change at least the experience of making this thing. So together I can affect someone who's making this thing. Mm -hmm. so, so basically, I was, uh, um, so, so, um, uh, so basically, the experience of working between non-professional actors and professional actors, and what the world is just here and making this thing, it's also a, a way also, it's it kind of blurred the boundary between reality and non-reality. The, the shot wouldn't finish with that. The emotion was still here because they would remember uh, uh, someone they loved or from their family or a friend. And also I believe because it's very difficult as a Syrian refugee to be in different countries as a refugee because somehow we, we find a lot of hard questioning but also found a lot of resistance about of, of, uh, of fear of who is the other and who is the coming a kind of enemy. So, so it's, not it's not easy to make the thing. So also it was also kind of making job opportunity for my community to make this thing and so it's in difficult circumstances. Well done, amazing. Let's cut to the audience to see if anyone has a question. So <clears throat> thinking about like the barriers that you kind of come against, like what is like probably like the main kind of thing that's holding you back? Like if there was more female directors, would that be something that would help? If there was a framework for you, would that help? Or is it perception? You know what I mean? So like what are the kind of things that are barriers and things that could help you? <laughs> so I think that we all need allies. I think that um, as a gay woman, I need straight allies. I think um, as a white woman, I tried to be an ally for the, the community that I filmed with and was able to get access that they couldn't get and to talk to the cops, to, to do things that they, um, as a black filmmaker, I wouldn't have had the uh, privilege. Um, and I think that as women, we need male allies uh, that believe in us and that don't hear our voices and immediately assume that we know less or hear us are um, a little more timid or less confident and to see that as being less talented because they're not the same. Um, and you know, there's been so many times that I've gone into a room to pitch an idea 
and the only people in that room are men. And I can hear my own voice sounding less um, confident. confident or just coming across as if my ideas count somehow less than theirs. And um, I have a producer who worked on the film with us who is a, a British man, a straight man, and his role was to take any ideas that I had and say them again to men so that they may sound like... Oh, I see. Yes. And sadly, it worked. It worked. There was many moments that um, I would say something on the phone and, uh, and then he would just repeat what I said yeah. later <laughs> and they would agree. And so, you know... Man
difficult mm -hmm. and how's it for? So I thought I can't watch playback, so I'm going to be in front of the camera learning the fight sequences, working with the fight directors and recreating all these different fight scenes. And I need someone who's going to be looking through the, through the lens and checking that I've got shots so that when I come to edit, I can put the fight scene together. My brother's an editor, I invited him to come. So he came and he's directed. So he was sort of like, you know, all these people. And Ryan, my DOP, who was my absolute, total, complete ally and was a complete G, sort of eyeing him up. And the crew were sort of thinking, throwing his weight around a bit. Ryan quite quickly got his back up and said, right, you, outside now. <laughs> and, said, and, said, and said to him, I don't like alpha males. He said, I don't like alpha males and I don't work with alpha males. There's one voice I want to hear and it's Jessica's. Exactly. And I was like, <laughs> I was enjoying it, to be honest. Maybe a little bit too much. If I knew my brother wouldn't, wouldn't kind of, but basically everyone calmed down and it was fine. But, you know, when you have a man like Ryan Edelson on your side, and, you know, who it turned out for all of his own reasons was a phenomenal supporter of the female energy, female creativity. It's phenomenal. Yeah, you know. it's an ally. An ally. There you go. Yeah, allies come from all shapes and sizes. So, yeah. Time for maybe one more question at the back there, sir. Um, I'm just curious because this is a question. We'll have you afterwards, don't worry. Um, sorry, it's just generally about the nurturing new female voices in the community because obviously. challenging is it to get new writers into the mix? I mean, are there particular writers that each of you are admirers of who are sort of influencing this book? So screenwriters you're talking yeah, about? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I, I, one or two of you will speak to that. I, I just had a great script. Um, yeah. production company sent me, you know, like, for example, this is a perfect example of female script, genre piece. Yeah. You know, she's interested in female directors. And she only wants, she wants a female to direct her film. So she's now able to call the shots because she's written a great script to her production company who want to make the film and she wants a female director on board. So like it works both ways, you know? Mm. It's, and, and it's great that she's done that. I thought I might get a chance to do that, I might not, but you know, I feel like that's a good way to work, right? You, you know, you, you, know you, you could want a female writer, you know, but I don't know, you, you make decisions based on gender, really, because art is art. You know, it's, it's, it's a good thing to remind people as well is we're not, Filmmakers, because we're women and we want to, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're filmmakers yeah. and artists because yeah. we're filmmakers and artists, you know, and and, and, and and the change is is that we're being able to be what we are, you know, and that's and that's that's important to stress that anyway. I think the lady with the hand up was speaking oh, that point. Is that right? Thank you because you spoke to the point I wanted to make. I'm Stephanie Morris from San Pedro, California, the port of Los Angeles. I'm a journalist, but I'm also a director of this film festival I founded 16 years ago. I'm interested in your U.S. state. I'm I haven't seen your movies yet. I'm sorry to say it's a lot to navigate, but I know what it takes to make a movie. I've been on sets. I've been associated. So commendation to you and how you are empowering yourself and each other. And that gets to the point. Isn't it, it's, it's a paradox. Isn't it that you want the best talent to support what you're doing? So it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl or a female. I mean, can you put the name from the hat and go for the strict talent? And then again, still try to empower feminine side because it, it does bring a perspective. So speak to that and also that um, I, I believe we have to stop listening to what I do believe is media pollution and, and make decisions for ourselves based on the caliber of people and their character and what they're doing and not be swept up in what is becoming ep an epidemic in the U.S. with a lot of the 
stuff, so I had to just add that little moment because you're all doing great, and you are bringing more women in, and, and if 38% of the Salta folks are women directors, which is extraordinary, how many, on your crews, what was the percentage of women workers, female workers? 35%? Maybe I'll do it tonight. <laughs> 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 well, we had editors. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I would say probably about 60%. Yeah. 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 I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't really know how to work it out. And does that include cost? No, it doesn't include cost. So nothing like that. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't even... They did um, a survey where they took um, 100 men and they said, if you were sick, would you want to be cared for by a man or a woman? All 100 of them said a woman. And then <laughs> they took a survey of 100 women and they asked the same questions and they also all said women. And so I, I think that, yeah, I say that to just say that I think there are some things that men do better and, there, and this, of course, isn't a generalization, but that, that, like you were saying, that it's naturally they're drawn for, and there are some things that women do better. And, and when you're able to acknowledge that and say, you know, I could get into a room with the camera and make 20 men feel comfortable. And I think right. that that was a privilege I had as a woman mm -hmm. because I could listen to them and talk to them and feel unintimidating. Mm -hmm. And so I could pull an authentic story from them in a way, because I was a woman, and I think working with actors is very similar. And and um, so I think simply by starting to acknowledge that, like you have all been saying, that take the best talent in what you do. Yeah. And if I find a man who's going to translate for me <laughs> or fight in a room to get money, then why would I try and have a, a shyer woman do that role that could be perhaps better done? So I, I do really think it's, it's, it's about simply acknowledging that we all have talents and that they're all different and, and bringing them all together. About equality. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do yeah. think we have to check our prejudices, though. Yes, of course. Um, yeah. Because, you know, the, so Mesa was shot by, by a, a male DOP, but I've subsequently done a short film, and, you know, I, I thought I was going to shoot with a female DOP, and I, it, I really had to check my own prejudice. Like, I had to say I've, I'm consciously going to shoot with a female DOP and it was a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. Does it you go away? Yeah, no, in an amazing way. Um, I mean, it was an amazing experience. It, it, the set felt different. The, the, the power dynamics felt different. It was so stark. But it, it, it was a question of, you know, we do think of male DOPs um, and, and, and we do somehow give more to male DOPs. Whereas female DOPs really have to prove themselves. Yeah. You know, they have to show that they can be as good as men. Um, and you don't give them the chance that you would give a male DOP. And Ma. so we do have to check ourselves. Of course. My DOP is a female, and uh, all the men in the industry said, uh, you're a woman, the camera is very heavy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have a seven years old boy, and when I take it, yeah. take care because it's very heavy. <laughs> it's so silly things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so silly things. Unfortunately, I could talk about this all day, but um, yeah. unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Thank you all so much for coming. Um, so, thank you all for coming. Right, so yeah, that's another episode, man. Um, yeah, I know it's coming to you late. 
it's just been, yeah, it's just been packed out today, so hopefully, tomorrow we'll get it, the, you know, we'll get it to you a bit earlier, um, and you should have reviews of The Favourite, Blaze, um, there will be something else, just need to work out what it is, I'm waiting on a couple of things, so, um, so yeah, you know, it'll be another fun day tomorrow, alright, so, um, yeah, you know, grab those tickets while you can, man, because, you know, festival ends on Sunday, remember, alright, okay, see you tomorrow.